before I get in trouble, open your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. And uh, we are working our way through the book. We've not done verse by verse in a very strict sense, although certainly we haven't skipped over any of the themes. So chapter 6, we, we pretty much summarize in our discussion of the latter half of chapter 5, for example. We are in chapter 7. I will say, chapter 7 is, is, is a chapter that uh, in 10 years I need to come back to. Um, I don't know how you feel, but I, I, one of the things I've learned in life is uh, read something, study it, come back to it at your next stage in life. If you're in middle school, come back to it in high school. If you're in high school, come back to it in college. In college, come back to it and you get married. If you get married, come back to it and you got kids. And then on and on it goes. And I think you'll see how you grow and uh, how you've, you've changed and, and how you've matured. I think this be one of those chapters, uh, an area that I've, I, I struggle with this week. But maybe five to ten years, come back, look at it again with uh, uh, more mature eyes and uh, fresh eyes. So we'll see what we can do with it. Ecclesiastes 7, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. Solomon, the king of Israel, writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, and by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is this laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient is in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of the wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Watch you to destroy yourself. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise. A wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times uh, you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know, to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's go Lord in prayer. 
Our Father, we ask as always you open our hearts and our mind, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet. We would go in obedience to Christ because we've encountered your word. We've encountered your son. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May we be seated. One of the things that hopefully by now you've picked up on is Ecclesiastes is, is all about how to navigate uh, the vanity of life. And what we discover in this chapter is essentially we have two options. You put the first six chapters and chapter seven together. We have two options how to navigate a, a fleeting, vain life. Our two options are escapism on the one hand or worship on the other. The vanity of pleasure, the critic has told us, the vanity of wealth and addiction, entertainment, power, politics, religion are all forms of idolatrous escapism. Think about it. Why is it that depression will lead us to alcohol? Why is it that loneliness will lead us to lust? Why is it that boredom leads to mindless entertainment? Why is it that we spend so much of our time online, so much of our time at rallies, and so much of our time in front of screens? If we are honest, we cope with this fallen world by trying to escape from it. But the critics suggest here there is a better way. It is not the way of escape. It is the way of worship by means of the way of wisdom. And notice he starts here in the first six verses with how death is a great teacher. Now, chances are when we read through this, particularly those early verses, you're thinking this cannot be in the Bible. And at that point, you thought, see there, that's why y'all need the King James. It'll fix this. No, no, no. But, but what you're reading is actually what Solomon, the critic, wrote. Death is a great teacher. Now, if you've been trekking with us, death has been a major theme. I would argue it is the major theme of the book. Uh, one of the books I've been reading through our study of Ecclesiastes is called uh, Living Life Backwards. The whole point is, is if we start with death, and this is what the critic does here, you start with death and then move your way back to birth, life seems to make more sense. Now, to us, that's a bit morbid. And the reason that sounds morbid is because we have sanitized death. We've sanitized it. But in the ancient world, and by ancient world, I mean uh, everything before the 20th century, essentially, uh, death was everywhere you went. You grew up on a farm, you had to deal with death. You, you grew up in a pre-modern uh, technology medical world, you grew up around death. Large uh, 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 mortality rates among infants and so on and so forth. Everyone was surrounded with death. And the real struggle of Ecclesiastes is, being that death is an appointment that we will not be able to cancel, what do we do with it? What do we do with death? What do we make of it? Death does not make void all that we have, or does death not make void all the things we have done and accomplished? Remember, he spent two or three chapters on this very issue. Think about it. You can gain all the wealth in the world, but as we said last week, uh, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can have the best and, and the most, and most favorable relationships imaginable. But when you die, we die alone. You can have all the power that anyone has ever experienced in the human history. But yet we are powerless before death. We can be healthy, yet even the best medical care cannot secure immortality. You can have an inheritance uh, that you receive or an inheritance you leave behind. But, but how do you know that what you leave behind will be used with wisdom? This is Solomon's frustration. Here is Solomon who's created this great kingdom for Israel. And guess what he's got coming behind him? A fool of a son who will ruin everything. 
So what's the point of all of that? Death seems to make it all void. And it seems to make much of what we value fleeting and vain. I think I mentioned this several weeks ago, if not months ago, that there was a, I think it was a New York Times, New York Post or something. You can't tweet it anyways. Um, um, that's, that's a hilarious joke if you follow your news. Um, is, is it told the story of how a lot of like mothers, for example, want to leave behind some of the things they value to their daughters, but their daughters don't want it. Why? Because they've collected so much stuff they have no room for it, and they've collected stuff they intend to give to their daughters. And guess what? Their daughters don't want it either. So what you have is this, this problem. Think about it. We spend our whole life collecting things. We spend our whole life achieving things, whole life pursuing things. And then death comes and it shows us how fleeting all of it really was, whether it be material or immaterial things. Now, these opening Proverbs, and you can see the way they're written, the first 13 verses are, are Proverbs, much as you would find them in the book of Proverbs. These opening Proverbs are consumed with the issue of death. Verse 1 mentions the day of death. Verse 2 and 4, the house of mourning. Uh, verse 3 mentions sorrow. And it is the reality of death that has forced the critic to ask why. Why do we pursue wealth? Why do we fight injustice? Why do we leave an inheritance? Why do we want to gain in knowledge and understanding? Why do we secure longevity and health? Why fight for power and influence? Why build relationships? All of this will be voided by death. But notice that these proverbs approach death not as something that should be escaped. That's what we typically do but rather as something to we must learn from. Notice what he says there, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Well, on that encouraging note, let us pray and be done for the day. <laughs> right? I suspect when you read this, your reaction to what mine was the other day. What? What? I mean... Apparently, we got a little carried away with the birth of our two children. <laughs> you know, it's just what the Bible says. No more celebrating birthdays, y'all. It's unbiblical. <laughs> you have no idea how much money I just saved in that comment. <laughs> Actually, you have no idea how much that has cost me <laughs> in that comment. I'll pick up flowers on my way home. But one's reputation on the day of their death, he's arguing, is better than the day of their birth. We will all enter and leave this world accompanied with tears. Think about it. When we are born, you are crying, <laughs> right? right? Uh, and that is normal. That is good, right? Uh, it's like every birth, someone has said, wow, listen to the lungs on that one. Can we stop that? Like, like, can we, why do we do that? Right? I don't, I don't know. Uh, but when we die, of course, there is the accompaniment of tears. But a man who builds a godly and good reputation leaves behind something that will indeed outlive him. But there's really something more going on here. The joy of a baby is rooted in potential. Look at this little one. The whole world is ahead of them. They can accomplish anything. And, 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 and they'll be raised and they'll see this world. And they'll see it in ways that, 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 that I can only imagine. It is all based off of potential. But the joy of the funeral of a godly person is fulfillment. So you tell me which one is better, truly better to hear. On the one hand, the phrase, she has her mother's eyes. It's a good thing. 
But is it better to hear he was a godly man who influenced everyone around him for the good? Which one is better? I'm not asking which one is good, but which one is your wake now? Which one is better? Which one is better? And what a teacher death is. Just consider uh, 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 these two varied approaches in verses 2 to 6 on the issue of death and sorrow. And we, we start this in verse 2. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness uh, of face the heart is made glad. Well, what is he doing here? Saying there's two approaches to death and sorrow. The first we've discussed is that of escapism. You've heard me say that I can usually tell the minute I walk into a funeral home whether or not the person, the deceased, is a person of faith or not. You can walk in. I'm willing to bet you've been to enough funeral homes. You can walk in and you can sense the hope or the lack thereof. It isn't about are there tears. But is there, is, is there, are they hopeless tears? In fact, one of the ways you can tell is when you walk in, you start interacting with people, you will hear tears, but ask yourself, will I hear laughter in this room? Now, there, when I speak of laughter, I'm not saying making jokes and, and, and not recognizing the tragedy that is before you. The sting of death is real. But when, when, when one is a believer... And, and lived their faith on their, on their sleeve and died in hope. And everyone around them knows they died with great hope. And there is this, this community of faith. You know what you're going to find? Yes, this is sorrowful and sad. But there is reason to celebrate because death is a good teacher. Death is a good teacher. Several years ago, in fact, months before we, we, we first met y'all here at East Frankfurt, uh, I did a funeral of someone I loved deeply and just loved her dearly. And I put this up, up on Facebook, uh, and so it comes to my memories every year. And I think we just passed the anniversary. It was something like, working on the funeral sermon for so-and-so, uh, I, I can't figure out which stories to tell. Right? Not story, but stories. I was looking at my notes, and I was thinking, uh, these people can't last that long at a funeral, right? We've got to cut some of this out. Well, because this person was full of life and full of joy, and we had great moments together, and I want to share that as a celebration of life. And, and, and we've been to those sort of funerals, right? And the reason we've been to these funerals is, is because there is hope there. But when there is not hope, you get the opposite response. I've seen widows try to climb into coffins for their deceased spouses. I've seen adult children unable to let go of hands. I've seen families war over possessions. I've even seen police having to be in the funeral home during the visitation and funeral in order to monitor the family. Those are different tears. Those are, that's a different funeral. And it's difficult to stand there at the head of a casket knowing there is no hope here. And then the eyes are closed and the ears will not receive the truth of the gospel. Some look at the deceased and never contemplate their own life. They will soon return to their vain life of escapism. Deeper addictions, more entertainment, another web search. Just deeper and deeper and deeper into escapism. But the other option presented here is that of worship. Why? Because the wise learn from death. The wise man looks at the deceased and says, soon that will be me in that coffin. 
What am I doing right now about it? No wonder Solomon says there in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. This rebuke is in the context of death. And this is why I think it is intolerable which is not an acceptable word unless you're, you're, you're a secularist to say. It is intolerable for ministers of the gospel to stand up on a, on a funeral and try to be cute and funny and try to get approval rather than to make clear the sting of death is real, but Christ is risen from the dead. Look, there is a place for the stories. There's a place for the jokes. There's a place for the laughter that are appropriate. But there is no place for the absence of the gospel at a funeral for a believer or an unbeliever. I received good advice from my mentor in ministry. I called him about, uh, I was asked to do a funeral with someone I didn't know who they were. Didn't have a clue, don't know the story. Don't know the saved, unsaved. Well, yeah, I just didn't know. Basically, they said, we need to preach her down there in that town. And that was me. If it was Bob Smith, they would have gotten Bob Smith. They didn't know me from Bob Smith. They probably thought my name was Bob Smith, for all I know. But I go down there, and his advice was very good. He said, look, you cannot minister to the person in that coffin. It's too late. Your responsibility is to everyone in that funeral home. If you do not preach the gospel, then leave the ministry. There is something true in that, isn't it? Death is a great teacher. You can spend your time seeking to escape your certain death. You can waste it away on addiction and anger, resentment or drama or pride. Or you can learn from it. The day is quickly approaching. What sort of person should we be as a result? And am I right now prepared for that day? One of the many accusations people make about Christianity in general is that Christians are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. In his book, Mere Christianity, I'd recommend it to you, C.S. Lewis tackles this myth head on. He says, quote, um, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. He goes on, It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, he says, and you'll get neither. What a teacher death is. John Piper taking this quote adds to it. He says, yes, I know. It is possible to be heavenly minded. We are of no earthly use. My problem is I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty, his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. I think your boy John Piper is right. What a teacher death is. The day will come. When you will see God face to face and be held accountable to what you have done with his son 
and how you've lived your life. What a teacher death is. Truly, truly, the day of death is better than the day of birth. But not only that, but we see that wisdom is a needed teacher. Isn't it enough to say, look, there's death. Okay, I got it all figured out. We need wisdom in navigating these waters. If escapism is not an option, then we must choose worship. Worship. You will either choose the rest of your life escapism or worship. And, and if escapism does not heal us in the face of death, in the face of this fleeting life, then worship must be the answer. But in order to grasp this, we've got to have godly wisdom. Death teaches us to consider eternal things. Wisdom helps us to navigate this world that will lead us to eternal things. Now, the problem when it comes to this is what Solomon has already said about wisdom. So if we were to go back to Ecclesiastes 1, he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and a striving after a wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a great striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And we see this tension in this passage. We see wisdom misused in verses 7 to 10 and wisdom rightly applied throughout the rest of the chapter. Notice, as quickly as I can, four ways wisdom is misused in this passage. The first is greed. I don't know, do I have those up here? No. First is greed, verse 7. He says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Have How much... Uh, how many hearts have been corrupted by greed? Well, quite, quite one or two, I, w- I would say. Uh, pride, there in verse 8. The patient heart finishes projects they begin. The proud heart um, wants to be seen and acknowledged. How many hearts have been corrupted by pride? This is a false wisdom. Anger in verse 9. How many lives have been da- damaged by angry souls? Look, I am a soccer referee. I know the answer to that question. You know, the joke I've said a hundred times, I became a referee because I don't feel like I get criticized enough in ministry. <laughs> or as a husband, right? You know, it's... <laughs> I better get those flowers. Nostalgia there in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Notice, it sounds wisdom to say, oh, if only we can go back to the good old days, right? We've talked about this in Ecclesiastes. In fact, what really divides, uh, this is, uh, 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 Levin is, is his last name. Yuval Levin, I think. I, I'm getting his name wrong. He argues that the difference between the left and the right is nostalgia. The left wants to go back to the 60s, the glory days, the good days, you know, hippies and all that sort of stuff. Woodstock, rock on, man. And whereas the right want to go back to the 50s, you know, where boy and girl actually meant something, right? right? And, and that, that's pretty much what it is that we're fighting over. Which, which generation, which decade is better? But it's all nostalgia. If, if we are tempted to look back at the world uh, the way it was, that is another form of escapism. Remember the good old days? We're like, like Uncle Whatever from Napoleon Dynamite, right? If only coach had put me in when I was in my prime and I was doing everything, that is escapism, nostalgia, it sounds wise, but it is not indeed. Longing for the past clouds, the difficulties of those days and fails to live in light of the hope that we have in Christ for this day. 
But notice in verse 11 to 13, wisdom is properly understood. So although wisdom has its limitations, we saw that in chapter 1, it is still a gift from God. In verse 11, he says that wisdom is good. In verse 12, he tells us to protect wisdom because wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Thus, those who learn from death will study at the feet of Lady Wisdom. And what does Lady Wisdom teach us? She teaches us to worship. Worship. And this is the application of the text in verses 14 to 29. Two things he argues here at the end of this chapter. First, here's wisdom. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Notice what he says in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It is mythical. It's actually heretical to say God does good things to good people. Satan does bad things to bad people. You're not going to find that verse in the Bible. Maybe in, in 3 Hezekiah, it may be in there, uh, but that's, that's not our tradition. It's not in there. What you're going to find is the righteous and the wicked suffer. In fact, that's really his argument uh, in, in a few verses after that. The righteous and the wicked suffer. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What's the old saying? I may get it wrong. The same sun that hardens the clay softens. Someone help me. What does it soften? Hardens the clay. Google it and just text it out to everybody. Uh, it's really spiritual. You could put it on your back of your car. You know, the quicker we realize that we are not in control, the better off we will be. The great lie of America is that we can control everything. If you have enough insurance, got enough in savings, enough security, you'll be just fine. But that is a myth. You are not in control. You want to be free of your anxiety, your anger, your bitterness, all that sort of stuff? Begin here. God is sovereign. You are not. Isn't that good news? You would make a terrible divine being. But God does not. God is in control. You are not. What matters, he tells us there in verse 18, is fearing God. A life content in Christ is a life well lived. If God is sovereign, let him be in control. Let us focus on personal holiness and not desired omnipotence. That leads to the second and final thing he mentions here. Holiness is essential. Holiness is essential. This is what wisdom teaches us. In order to understand what is communicated here, uh, because it, it does get confusing in these verses, we need to remember that Solomon has a habit of personifying wisdom. We've already done that in referring to her as Lady Wisdom. Uh, wisdom is not... Uh, a, a feminine, right? Uh, because that term doesn't mean anything these days. Uh, but it is, we, we personify wisdom. Now, he does it in two ways in Proverbs. The first seven chapters, he compares uh, uh, wisdom, or not wisdom, he, he compares foolishness to a seductress. In chapter eight, he compares wisdom to um, uh, lady wisdom. She, she's personified as lady wisdom, uh, sometimes referred to as Sophia. Sophia is the Greek word for, for wisdom. What is worse than death, he asks, or he says, uh, is um, the man who is trapped by lady foolishness. And that's why you get some of the strange language about, uh, about this woman here. He's not speaking of women. He's talking about foolishness and wisdom. 
So verse 26, he says, he who pleases God escapes her, escapes foolishness, escapes vanity, escapes madness and this fleeting life. It is pleasing God that is most valued here in these concluding verses. And the history of humanity is an effort to explain everything and to find meaning from apart from worship. And that is not wisdom. That is foolishness. But what God has made crooked, he says at the end, can't be made straight by man. It can only be made straight by God. That is the hope of redemption. Man cannot make what is crooked straight, but God can. That is why Christ begs all to come to him. He who is greater than Solomon, wiser than any that's ever lived. And he says, if you will come to me, you will find rest for your weary souls. And that which is crooked, Christ will straighten. This is why we need redemption. This is why we need a Savior. We've told this story before, so I don't want to labor on it. The hymn writer of Come Thou Found a Very Blessing, the context of that hymn is Tragic story. Horatio Bashard, is that his name? I'm going to mispronounce the last name. Horatio's first name. Um, while in America, his family was in Europe, discovered they had died in a shipwreck accident. He lost his entire family, his wife and his kids. So he had to get on a boat himself, travel over to see his deceased family and then bring them back. What would you have done on that? airplane ride or boat ride over there. No doubt you would have cried. No doubt you, you would have mourned. No doubt anger would have, would have shown up in you. But the question is, is death a great teacher? And is wisdom a needed teacher? Will we choose escape? Will we choose worship? And it is there on that boat, he wrote his most famous hymn, Come Thou Fount, of every blessing. I'd like to read just two of the verses. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see your lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing your wondrous grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send your angels now to carry me to realms of endless days. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. What a lesson learned from the sting of death. Of course, our ultimate hope isn't in the sting of death, but knowing that death's sting has been removed by the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, we don't need to choose escapism. We are citizens of the kingdom. Let us choose to live our life in worship. Let's pray.